How many of you noticed the title of this morning's message? Good. Not many. <laughs> I really struggled with the title. I started with, uh, you're a bunch of fools. And I thought, well, that doesn't, I got to include myself. So we're a bunch of fools. But um, anyway, so I settled on born fools. We're all born fools. And I'll explain that as we go along this morning. But our text is from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. And in, in that verse, Paul says that we are to live as, not as unwise, but as wise. And I find it interesting, why did he start with saying, don't live as unwise, and then, why did he start with a negative and then go to the positive? There's a reason for that. But this morning, I think a lot of you know a song. It's called, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock. And the foolish man built his house upon Okay. Jesus told that parable. And it's interesting, the last line of the song says, So build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ, and the blessings will come down. And then it goes through. We'll sing that at the end of the message. The question is this morning is how does one build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ? In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 5 and 7, the writer tells us that we are to get wisdom above everything else. To get wisdom and understanding. There's nothing greater that we are to achieve, to seek after, to strive for than wisdom and understanding. Last time we looked at wisdom and the practical side of wisdom, how practical wisdom is important. It's important to life. We all have to make decisions in life, practical decisions. But that is not our ultimate goal to be wise in the practical things of life. There has to be something beyond that. The definition that I gave back then was of wisdom is using knowledge to gain the desired outcome. Now that can be positive or it can be negative. You know, people use wisdom knowledge in how to get the desired income, income, outcome. I had to think of, there's, have you ever heard of, of, of mob? What's it called? It's where a mob of people go into a store and they just steal and they go in as a mob of people and, and the store is just overwhelmed by their presence. That's happening now and it's a big thing in, in, in different cities businesses are just closing they cannot they can't stay in business because these mobs are coming in and just clearing the shelves now that's wisdom right so if you want to steal something if you get a bunch of people together in mass you can just overwhelm the opposition but that's not good wisdom their desired outcome is hap- is is being done by by their uh, their desire to steal and how they're doing it. They're using wisdom, but in a very poor sense, a bad sense, a sinful sense. In the Old Testament, uh, there are, as one writer called it, many shades or meanings of, pra- and the pra- of the practical aspect of wisdom. And I think of this, you go into any store and you go to the clerk and you tell them, I need green paint. And so they'll take you over back to the paint department and you've got a thousand different shades of green. Well, I just want green. Well, do you want 
you know how it is. So wisdom is kind of like that. John Evans, he's a writer and a pastor. He, he's, he includes this. Learning, as, as he defines wisdom, it's one, the shades of wisdom has different nuances, different meanings. Learning, cleverness, common sense. It can mean skill or technical know-how. But it also can mean good character and personal discipline. It can mean diligence, truth-telling, peacemaking, being a good listener, self-control, and compassion. He goes on to say that wisdom has been defined as the art of steering through life with its obstacles, uncertainties, temptations, and injustices. Avoiding wrong paths and turning back when we make mistakes. That is wisdom. I just read of a church. Jim sent me the article of a church. I think it's in Illinois. That is the, uh, the Security and an Exchange Commission is requiring them to pay back $780,000 in tithes that were given. And it's the church will have to close if they can't come up with that money. What happened was somebody in their congregation was giving into the offering thousands of dollars. And so they used that. They built, they built additions, and I don't hope that's not why we're doing addition. Anyway, they built additions. They did, you know, ministry things, all good things. Well, then it was found out this man was either embezzling or he was stealing from a company and he was giving a portion of that money to the church. And the government says, you got to pay it back. So if we start getting huge checks in the offering plate, I'll have to get with Wayne. He's not here this morning. Who knows? He might be out spending the church. No, he's not. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Sorry, Wayne. <laughs> um, so it's, it's interesting how um, the art of steering through life we want to make wise choices and wise decisions. And when we make mistakes, we have to admit those mistakes and then turn around. Repentance is simply turning around and going the other direction. Sometimes the best way to describe something is by looking at its opposite. And I want us to do that this morning. What is the opposite of wisdom? What would you say one word defines the opposite of wisdom? Foolishness. That's right. The word fool, and I looked it up in, in the concordance, and its variations, its different shades, different ways of describing it, fools, foolish, foolishness, so on, appears over 180 times in Scripture, which tells us that it must be fairly common, or at least it's something that we need to, to watch out for. So this morning I want to look at three different kinds of fools in Scripture as Scriptures defines foolishness or fools in three different, uh, three different ways. And I ran across, we have this devotional, and there was an article in that, in that devotional about wisdom that just kind of got my mind going in all kinds of directions. So this morning the writer kind of stimulated my thinking. So um, we're going to deal with this this morning. The first we'll find in Psalm 14. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Psalm 14. And maybe you have your phone with you, uh, and you like to read your Bible on the phone. Um, that's not wise. Because it's so easy to, uh, well, let me check my email, or let me check my latest you know, X account or whatever it might be. I like the book. It's just, this is God's Word. Um, 
I'm not saying it's not on the phone, but anyway, I just like having the book uh, in my hand. So I encourage you. So I don't have it on the screen this morning because I want you to, to, to turn to it in your own Bible. And there's one in the pew if you need that. Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, uh, provides us with a general description of humanity. And the first type of, of fool in Scripture is those who deny God. Okay, so Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good not even one. Oh, now, wait a minute. That can't be true. I mean, people are basically good. They, that can't be true. And so we protest. And so we want to know, well, who says this? Well, verse 2 makes it very clear. The Lord is the one who sees. The Lord says this. It's His assessment of humanity. It's not ours. It's His. Some call this the total depravity of man. R.C. Sproul has called it radical corruption. The Apostle Paul calls it dead in sin. Whatever one calls it, it isn't good. All right? The picture that God has of mankind is not good. All have turned away. And so... The idea that man is basically good if you have all the right environmental things in place, you know, good this and good that, and everybody turns out great. God says, nah, it's, it's just the opposite. The truth is, we are all born fools. That's where we begin. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I've heard it said that when a baby's born, the first thing they do is clench their fists. And I'm not sure that's in defiance of God, of course. But it's just, that's a way of describing how we are. The fool may not say it out loud. Psalm 14 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That doesn't mean he says it with his lips. Many atheists, they claim today, there is no God. They say it out loud. But the fool in his heart, you can't say it out loud if it's not in your heart, I guess. But his life focus reveals that in his heart, he believes that there is no God. There is no force greater than himself who has the authority to dictate how he is to live his life and certainly not one to whom he has to give an account. And I think all we need to do is go through human history and it's one long, sad documentation, however you want to say that, from one generation to the next of this foolish belief of mankind simply saying in their heart, there is no God, I will not bow. We see it infecting, infecting our own present culture and the world we live in in ways that five, ten years ago we would have never dreamed of even hearing about. I found it interesting, and I did a little bit of reading, that our, our current Congress is having hearings on UFOs. Now, why UFOs? 
there's something happening in our culture, in our world, that people, that Satan is upping his tactics of deception. Did you just hear this week that in Mexico they presented as evidence to aliens that they found these little creatures from somewhere? And they're actually giving, they're not calling them lunatics. So what is happening in our culture? Well, when you start from the premise that there is no God, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in something, you'll fall for anything, I guess is the way the phrase goes. So it's not surprising that we see these things. In Psalm chapter 2, the question is asked, why do the nations rage and plot in vain against the Lord and against His anointed one? Because they are fools of the highest order. And God, in response, He laughs at them. He scoffs at them. Why? Because it is they're doing it in vain, in vanity. They're building their houses on sand with eternal consequences. All of humanity falls into one of two categories. Those who say there is no God and those who say that there is. But there are other kinds of fools as well. And sadly, where the first category of fools, those who say there is no God, fall outside the church, largely outside. I did read of a pastor, been a pastor for many years, who doesn't believe that God exists. That's a fool. But the other two are more troubling. Because a fool of these last two, as I will describe, can be sitting on the pew next to you. You might be one. I might be one. I don't think so. But it's possible to be inside the church to believe that there's a God and still be a fool as God describes it. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 6. And in verses 4 through 6, we have a description of the fool that despises God. Where the first fool says there is no God, the second fool despises God. Chapter 6 starting in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, one thing I acknowledge this morning that this passage is a loaded one, if you, if you understand what I mean by that. All throughout human history, I understand this passage has been debated as what did the Holy Spirit mean when he had this written? What was his intention? And of course, the big question is that comes out of this is can one lose your salvation? Well, of course, it depends on who you ask, right? But our particular answer, my particular answer, doesn't really matter. It's what does God say? 
because He is the one who determines all of that. Going back to those who believe in their, or say in their heart that there is no God, just because they say there is no God does not mean that God goes away. They just believe that to their own detriment. So can we lose our salvation? Yes and no. You can't lose your salvation like you lose your car keys. Oh man, where did I put my salvation? I just, I don't know what I did with it. it it's not like that. But can I choose to walk away from the Lord Jesus Christ? Can I choose to despise Him? To reject Him? The fool who despises God. And I want us to look at an example of someone like that this morning. Maybe two. And it's found in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 25. Our example is Esau, the firstborn son of Isaac. Before he and his twin brother Jacob were born, their mother Rachel called out to God because of the turmoil that they were causing in her womb. And there was turmoil throughout their whole lives. And God revealed to her this decree. The sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And then just a few verses later, we read in the account that Esau, the oldest, he was a skilled hunter. We understand that he was brash. He came in from the field, he was famished, he was hungry. And Jacob, who by contrast was more civilized, calm, and even-tempered, it is said, But Esau demands some of the red stew that Jacob had on the fire. And Jacob, probably knowing the prophecy that was given to his mother, he agreed to give Esau some of his fresh cooked stew as long as Esau was willing to give him his birthright and to make an oath that he would do that. Esau responds by saying, what good is a birthright if I'm going to starve to death? You see what he's doing? And then it tells us in the text, so Esau despised his birthright. Now to us, a birthright doesn't have much meaning in our culture. But in that day, the firstborn birthright was a big deal. Matter of fact, it was something that God had decreed back in the book of Deuteronomy. We read about it. It was important. It was huge. It was part of the covenant. So Esau despised his birthright. He treated it as unimportant and irrelevant with contempt. And it isn't until we read in Hebrews chapter 12 we're given more information about Esau that we find the reason why God considers him, considered him a fool who despised God. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 16. The writer is issuing a warning to us, to all of his readers. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one can see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. First, in contrast to Esau, how we are to live, we are to live at peace. Living at peace requires effort on our part. When I'm offended, when I may be mistreated, when I'm misunderstood, when I'm neglected, you can just add to that list. It is your choice, it is my choice, whether I will forgive that person and move on, or whether I will hold a grudge. Whether I will live at peace or not. And as we look at Esau, he came demanding, I want some of the stew and I want it now. Give it to me. It was all about Esau. He could have come in and said, Jacob, that really smells good. Can you, can you share some of that with me? But he didn't. Now, I don't want to paint Jacob as a model son here either. Because he probably knew Esau's personality. He knew how he was a brash man and, and all of that. And so he took advantage of that. But Esau had a choice to make at that moment. Would he choose poorly? Would he reject the firstborn right as the firstborn that was provided through the covenant? Or he, would he reject it? He chose to despise it. No one could force Esau to embrace the grace of God as it talks about in Hebrews. That God had provided through his family. God had an important message to Esau. His gift to Esau was being born first. But then you have that prophecy that the older will serve the younger. God knew in his foreknowledge all that was coming. The thing that is important for us to remember as parents is that our children are fools until they choose to follow the Lord Jesus. So when the writer to Hebrews says to embrace the grace of God, we need to lead them in that. We need to make it clear that they are sinners in need of forgiveness, of salvation. And if we don't, we do great harm. So we see also that there is this root of bitterness that can come up, that can so easily take hold. We see it in Esau. Because of his rashness, his rejection of what God had provided, he became bitter. He was he hated Jacob. I think it says in, in uh, Genesis chapter 27, for the rest of his life. And this root of bitterness affects all relationships. They're torn apart and resentment and hatred ensues and it spreads like a cancer. And Hebrews tells us it defiles many. Esau did not grow up in a perfect family. None of us do. But he knew the covenant. 
He would have been taught that. He understood the blessings that come from that. And yet he chose to reject it. He despised those privileges. Hebrews chapter 12, 12 calls him unholy and profane. And the consequences of his foolishness were extreme. It's interesting as we look at verse 17 in Hebrews chapter 12. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Another way, another translation says, and we know that later when he wanted to inherit his father's blessing, remember he sold his birthright, and then later, just before Isaac dies, he goes to him to get his the firstborn blessing, and his father says, no, you can't have it. That's been given to your brother Jacob. Even though he begged for it with bitter tears, for it was too late to repent. So Esau, realizing his foolishness, desires to at least receive something from his father. He was rejected. It was no longer available to him. In chapter 27, verses 38 through 41, listen to these sad words. So Esau goes to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, listen to this blessing. This is a curse. Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. All because he despised the Word of God. The fact is, all of us have people in our families who have grown up knowing the truth. So what do we do? How do we take this passage? We live in the age of grace. And as we talked about just after Sunday school, we was mentioned in Sunday school from Romans 1, that, a, that as people get to the place in their life where God says, that's it, the door is closed. He turns them over. But the fact is, you and I don't know when that is. And so we continue to intercede for those people. We plead with God through the Holy Spirit to speak to them. And I believe He, he answers our prayers. So there's, it's not a thing to discourage us, but it's a warning that if we grow up knowing the truth and we reject it, there's trouble ahead. The third fool is one who disregards God. And I suppose that this one probably exists more than any of the others. The fool who disregards God believes that he exists. He does not reject outright the things of God, but he treats God and His Word as irrelevant to life. Christianity is just something that you believe. It's not something that really has much effect on your life. The Scripture is treated not as the very words of God once given for all time, but as a book with suggestions. You know, it's helpful. It's encouraging. It makes us feel better. I know what it says, but 
you know, our life is different. It's an old book, you know, it's helpful, but that's as far as it goes. And to this we'll turn to Luke chapter 12. And Jesus is speaking and he gives a parable and he's called by Jesus the rich fool. You know, it's interesting, even in that, in our culture, you can't be a fool and be rich, can you? Our culture says that. We know you can. Because you don't get rich by being a fool. But in God's eyes, that's not the case. Jesus gives this parable in response to a person who came to Jesus and wanted him to step in and to mediate between he and another family member over the inheritance. Now understand that it wasn't uncommon for people to go to an established, a recognized rabbi and ask for help in, in civil matters like this. So that wasn't out of line for that person necessarily. But out of that conversation where Jesus says, you know, why are you coming to me about this? That's not what I'm here for. Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he illustrates his point with this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. That's a logical consideration. He had a bumper crop. What am I going to do with these crops? He didn't have enough storage. And what's interesting in our culture, I find there's probably a lot of people in this, in our culture that don't have enough storage. Driving through Columbus yesterday, I saw on the side of a big storage container, 1-800-PACK-RAT. It's an actual business. So you can, you can go and you can rent one of their storage containers and on blazing on the side, can you imagine that sitting in your front yard? <laughs> 1-800-PACK-RAT. So maybe this guy was a pack rat. But it would only make sense. He had this huge crop. Now what am I going to do with my crop? Jesus continues. And then he said, speaking of the man, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll bid, build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. Again, just a common, everyday, logical thing to do. Here's his problem. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. That sounds like the wise thing to do, doesn't it? Now he would be able to do all those things that he was never able to do before because he couldn't afford it and he didn't have the time. So what seems to be the problem? Why would Jesus bring this up? Isn't that how it's supposed to be? Aren't you supposed to prepare for retirement? So you pack it all away so you can use it later. I had to think of Nelson Rockefeller one of the richest men that ever lived in this country, and someone asked him what time, how much money does it take to be happy? One dollar more. Wow, what a life. 
Verse 20. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? All of his work, all of his life, all of his gathering and planting and harvesting and storing, his life was wrapped up in the abundance of his possessions. And at the end of the day, he gains absolutely nothing. It will all be left for someone else. And then Jesus said, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. You have heard it, I'm sure. The phrase, the one who dies with the most whatever wins. The one who dies with the most toys wins. The one who dies with the most cars wins. There's even one, the one who dies with the most fabric wins. So you ladies that sew, be careful. (laughs) If that's where you put your hope, you and I will be severely disappointed. The fact is, no matter how much stuff we have, we will still die. And we take none of it with us. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, Jesus asked his disciples a question. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The rich fool's problem was not his bumper crop. It was not the size of his barns. It was that he was not rich toward God. He only considered himself and what he wanted and what he felt he needed and deserved. He treated his retirement as a reward for himself and himself alone. The time of life when he could sit back for many years and just eat, drink, and be merry. My guess is that we are all susceptible to falling into this category of foolishness. One who disregards God. We would never admit it. We would never say it out loud. But how we live can show that we do or are. When we wake up in the morning, and I've said it, we probably all say it, well, what are we going to do today? You know, I'm retired, right? So I don't have anything to do, which is really nice. (laughs) Maybe tomorrow. But the fact is, I shouldn't be asking, what am I going to do? What are we going to do? But Lord, what do you want me to do? So if somebody comes driving up my driveway that is in need of some kind of help, oh, what do they want? I don't have time for this. Lord, you brought them. I can take the time. I will take the time. Because I and we all want to be rich toward God. That's giving of our, of our financial stuff, yes. But it's our time, it's our energy, 
as we invest in other people and in the kingdom of God. Maybe it is tearing down our barn and building a bigger one if that enhances the kingdom of God. But being rich toward God must be our aim, our drive, our ultimate goal. If not, we are still just a fool. We're all born fools. But we need to make sure that we don't remain so. So As we close this morning, let's sing that little song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock. Now, I don't know, are there motions with that song? Okay, who other than Abby would like to come up and lead us in that, those motions? I know Elise would just love to. Um, no? They're shaking their heads no. Okay, let's all stand. If you know the motions, do them. I'm not even sure I know all the words, but Jesus told this parable. This is what Jesus said. Now, he didn't write the song, but the song describes the parable. So let's sing it, and then we'll pray and be dismissed.